a constant struggle. But this is not a battle of politics, a war of nations, or a clash of military powers. This struggle, our struggle, is not against flesh and blood. It is against the powers of darkness that confront us daily. A relentless battle between light and darkness, spirit and flesh. But as one caught in this struggle, you don't have to feel defeated or discouraged. God has made a way to redeem your struggle and give you victory. Are you ready for the battle? I appreciate Phil reading part of Romans chapter 8. That was the challenge from last week's message was to try and read Romans 8 every day this past week. How'd you do with that? Maybe a few times, maybe you did it every day, maybe you forgot completely about it, maybe you weren't even here last Sunday, you have no idea what I'm talking about. It's so important that we spend time in Scripture and let the Word of God shape our minds, because whatever is going on in our minds informs how we live. And Romans 8 has so many good reminders. Romans 8 reminds us that we live in the realm of the Spirit, not in the realm of the flesh. That the Spirit intercedes for us. That the Spirit, the presence and the power of God, helps us in our times of weakness. It reminds us that God is for us. And if God is for us, nothing, no one can stand against us. It reminds us that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know about you, but I need to hear those things. I need to be assured of those truths, those eternal truths that God is for me, he's on my side, that no matter what happens in this world, no matter what happens in my life, the Spirit is helping me, interceding for me, and that nothing can remove me from the love of God. Not anything I do, not anything I say, not anything anyone does to me can remove the love of God from me. We need to hear those things because our flesh is strong. And life is difficult. And our flesh is often pulling at us those primal desires that don't honor God but elevate self. That flesh pulls at us. But there's something else that pulls at us as well as we consider our struggle. As we consider what spiritual warfare is really all about. There is a social experiment that is pretty well known. It's been replicated a few times Every time I see it, I'm just fascinated. It's just so interesting to me. And so just in a second, I'm going to show you a video clip that comes, actually, it's really old. It comes from that old show, Candid Camera. Some of you may remember that show, like from the, I don't know, 60s, 70s, maybe 80s, I don't know. Old show, but it, it, it's a, a version of this social experiment called Social Conformity Elevator. The idea in this video and the idea in this experiment is there are some people getting on this elevator, and they're in on it. They're in on the experiment. They know what's happening. And so when they get on, rather than face the front, the door, like most of us do when we get on the elevator, they step into the elevator, and they face the back wall. Well, there's someone on the elevator, and the idea is, will this person conform to the pressure? Everyone else is facing the back wall. What will this person do? Let's roll the videotape. Sorry about the quality. Like I said, it's old. So here's, this guy's in on it. He gets in the elevator. He faces the back. She's in on it. She gets in the elevator. She faces the back. The guy you just saw go across the back, he is not in on it. One more person, I think, gets on the elevator. He too faces the back. And then we have this guy. He's looking. 
He's like, what's going on? His nonverbals are saying, I'm not getting this. This doesn't look right. He's wondering, what should I do? What's wrong with these people? Am I the one doing it wrong? He gets uncomfortable. He sort of turns to the back, but he's not ready to fully commit yet. He looks at his watch. How long is this going to go on? And then finally, yeah, he turns to the back. And then we have another version, same kind of thing. People get on the elevator, they're in on it, they face the back of the elevator, that back wall. And here's the guy in the suit, he moves over, he makes room, but he notices they're getting in the elevator, they're facing the back wall. What's wrong with these people? Surely this guy won't do that, and yep, he does it as well. Maybe I'm the one that's doing it wrong, I'll just turn around. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I am so, I'm so amazed every time I see that. But you know, sometimes it's just easier to go along with the crowd than to stand out, than to be different. It's not necessarily natural to, to ride an elevator with your back to the door. But when everyone else is doing that, it seems normal. In fact, if you were to do something different, you would be the one that would have something wrong with you. You would be the one that was abnormal. I wonder, do you ever feel this way? as a follower of Jesus in this world? Do you ever feel like everyone else is faced one way and you're trying to face the other way, but it's so tough, it's so difficult not to conform to the ways of the world? Here's the thing about going along with the crowd. Consensus creates social norms. Consensus creates norms. When everyone everyone, when everyone says this is the way it is, this is the way it's done, then that becomes what is acceptable. That becomes normalized. For example, many of us this week are probably going to spend time with family or friends. We'll probably gather around a table. I remember the days of you have the main table, and then you have the card table, then you have the other table, and then you have the coffee table, and you know, it just kind of the train of tables keeps going. And what is going to be on that table? Probably a lot of food, but probably for 95 plus percent of us, there will be some form of turkey on that table at some point this week, right? That's just what you do at Thanksgiving. Why do we eat turkey at Thanksgiving? I really don't know. I have no idea why. <laughs> I'm sure some of you know. I'm sure Google knows and we could Google that. Maybe it's something with the pilgrims or something. I don't know. Maybe that was just what was common back then. But we, maybe they just, Turkey has a good marketing person and they just said, you know, this is what you do at Thanksgiving. I, I don't know. But I know this everyone has turkey at Thanksgiving. What if you were to go into the house, all the families gathered, and you said, you know what? Everyone's sitting around the table. We're not having turkey. I ordered pizza. Here you go. Happy Thanksgiving. Some of you would get up and walk out, wouldn't you? This, you can't, we can't do this. Is there turkey on that pizza? There better be turkey on that pizza. Make it acceptable. Because everyone eats turkey at Thanksgiving. It's what is acceptable. It's the norm. It's what we do. So as we project this social experiment, as we project what happened on the elevator into real life, because let's face it, elevators, turkey, that doesn't really matter. But what happens in your daily life? And if you are the subject 
in the elevator. If you're the subject, you have the red circle around you, and you're living your life. My question is, who is shaping your thoughts? Who is setting the norms? Who is establishing the rules? Who are the agents of influence who are in on it, who are saying, this is the way it's done? And you may be sitting there thinking, now wait a minute, I would never get on an elevator and face the back wall, no matter what everyone else on the elevator was doing. And yet, how much do we allow? How often do we allow what we do and what we say and what we think to be shaped by social norms and cultural expectations? Even the term social norm implies what? That it's normal, that it's the way it should be, which means it's acceptable. It is approved, it is adopted by the mainstream culture. So who are the agents who are setting the norms? Society? Culture? The Bible calls it the world. And Scripture has a lot to say about the world. Some very direct words about the world's influence. So if you have a Bible, look at 1 John chapter 2. We're going to look at several different passages this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Inspired by the Holy Spirit... Here's what we read. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And so we read right there in black and white, plain as day, Do not love the world. You say, well, wait a second. I think I've heard a verse before, a very famous verse. John 3, 16, for God so loved what? The world. So let me get this straight. God loved the world, but he tells us not to love the world. That's why it's so important that we know what it is we're talking about, that we define in this case what world really is. The world, the Greek word is kosmos which is where you can see we get the word cosmos. It's the world. And in Scripture, it has a few different meanings. First of all, it can mean the actual physical world. You know, at school, when you have a... Do we still have globes at school? I don't know. We used to have a globe when I was a kid. And that globe represented the earth. That's the world, the physical world. In Romans 1, verse 20, we read that God created the world. And from his creation, his invisible qualities are seen. He created this physical, natural world. That's the world, the cosmos. But it could also mean the people of the world, the population, humanity, humankind. And that's why in John 3.16 we read, For God so loved the world. He loved people. He loved the people he created in his image. He loved you and me, all of humankind, but can also have a negative meaning, this idea of a sinful society that appeals to our flesh, and that's what we see in 1 John chapter 2 when he says, do not love the world. And so as we think about our daily struggle, our daily struggle that often plays out in the battlegrounds of our minds, our hearts, we need to acknowledge that the world, 
as this sinful and secular society is often working against the will of God and the way of Jesus. And it pulls at us because we are so often caught in the middle. For our discussion, think about world this way. This is how John Mark Comer describes it. He says, the world is a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. It's the world. You see, the world establishes how things are. But the problem is, because our world is fallen, how things are aren't always how things should be. In fact, the world has distorted shalom. Shalom is a beautiful Hebrew word. Maybe you think of shalom if you've heard it before and you think of peace, sort of a greeting, shalom, peace be with you. And that is what it means, but it means so much more than just simply peace. It means this sense of peace and justice. Basically what it means is for God's people, things were as they should be. In the garden, originally, there was shalom. There was peace. There was justice. Things were as they should be. And now the world has distorted this this version of shalom, distorted it into an imposter, an inferior version. We don't have life as it was intended. And so look back at 1 John chapter 2, our text just a moment ago. And what do we learn about the world? A couple of things just from this one passage. That the world is the breeding ground for ungodly desires. He says all of these things, these things that that are in our flesh, that, that pull us away from the truth of God, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, where do those come from? They come from the world. What else does he say about the world? He says the world is temporary. The world will not last. And, and again, not, not necessarily the physical world. It's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the ideas, the ideals, the values, the ways of the world. The things that, that we look to to find our identity. The things that, that culture and the world says are important. All of those things, those things we think are so, so critical to life, to happiness, to finding out who we are. He says they won't last. They're temporary. They will pass away. You see, the world stands in opposition to the kingdom of God. Not the physical world, certainly not humanity, but this dark force that is being governed, at least for now, by the prince of this world. And until the world is fully redeemed by God, it will be less than it should be. It will be moving toward a different goal. It will be serving a different God. It will be championing a different cause. There is beauty in the world. Don't misunderstand me. There is beauty in the world. There is good in the world. But there is also a dark side. A dark side that so often prevails. And that's why we shouldn't expect or be surprised when governments, when societies, when nations... When these things, when institutions, when they don't truly reflect kingdom values, even when sometimes they throw around the word Christian, why would we expect them to be ordered by the values of the kingdom of God if they are not seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? At best, at best, they are a very distorted version of how things should be. 
And at worst, they are evil empires that blatantly oppose God. Jesus had a warning. Jesus had a warning for his followers about the world. John chapter 15, verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. I want you to notice that phrase there. It's used a couple of times just in that short passage. Belong to the world. If you belong to the world, what does Jesus say? He says, here's the truth. If you belong to the world, if you were fully assimilated into the world, if you conformed to the pattern of the world, if you found your identity in the things of the world, if you played by the world's rules, then you would be accepted. You would be embraced by the world. In fact, you would be applauded because you're one of them. The truth is, you would also be envied behind the scenes secretly because, see, that's envy and jealousy. Those things are not of the kingdom of God. He says you would be accepted, you would be loved by the world. But he says that's not who you are. You don't belong to the world. I called you out of the world. And for those who are called out of the world, we find ourselves as adversaries. We find ourselves targeted by the world. As we consider what it means to be in this struggle, as we consider the spiritual warfare, against the rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world, we began to see, we began to see a picture, a fuller picture of spiritual warfare, of how it all works, of this daily struggle, of what life looks like apart from the, the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. Three words, entrapment, enticement, endorsement. Let me see if I can explain. Satan's deceptive lies they trigger in us distorted desires, which are then normalized by our world's defiant support. Haven't you found that to be true in your life? When you observe the world, don't you see that happening all around you? The devil bombards us with deception and lies. So often they are subtle perversions of truth, a little bit of truth in there, just enough to sound reasonable, enough to appeal to our selfish nature enough to get us to buy into these things. And those lies then become internalized. And they tap and they fuel our primal desires. What we just read, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And when we act on these things, does the world around us recognize those things as reckless, as immoral, as sinful? No, not at all. Instead, the world endorses those things. The prevailing culture normalizes those things. And that behavior, which is rewarded by the world, is then repeated. And we live in this cycle, moving us more and more away from the truth of God. You see, the world has a way of repurposing, repurposing sinful behavior and repackaging sin into something more appealing, something more socially acceptable. It's not sin, it's personal freedom. It's not sin, it's reproductive rights. 
It's not sin, it's living your truth. It's not sin, it's, it's higher understanding or enlightenment. It's not sin, it's just boys being boys. It's not sin, it's just the way things work. It's the way things are. It's not sin, it's just living your best life. And on and on we could go. And we watch all of this unfold on our digital feeds and on our screens, in our workplaces, in our schools, in the public arena and in private settings, in the marketplace, among politicians, in the government, sometimes even infiltrating our own homes and the church. It's everywhere. It's the world. But I wonder, as we watch this, as we bear witness to this dark world, what is our role? Are we just simply bystanders? Are we simply just observers? Are we just watching? I've mentioned this before, but I, I don't know, maybe you didn't hear, but it, I think it's worth mentioning again because it's, it's such a profound message. Several years ago, we had an opportunity to take some students from Oklahoma Christian to, to Europe on a study abroad trip. And two hours outside of Vienna, Austria, there is Motthausen, this former concentration camp. There's a picture of it. And so we had a tour one day of Motthausen. It is believed that at least 100,000 Jewish people were killed there. Many of them were put in the gas chamber, but most of them were killed by just simply working them to death, starving them and working them. Poor conditions. There was a huge rock quarry as a part of Mauthausen. Just basically on this picture, if you went to the far left and went down, you would, there would be this steep hill, and that was a rock quarry, and, and they would make these prisoners haul rocks up this steep hill. They hadn't eaten in days, just bones wrapped with flesh, and they would literally just die. And like a bowling ball, they would knock the others down. It was just brutal horrific, an awful sight. As our tour guide describes some of the atrocities that took place there, of course, it was this sobering experience. And I remember the day we were there, it was so cold. The wind was kind of blowing. It was this cold wind. It just felt like it was blowing right through you. And it was, we were just trying to take all of this in, trying to process this. And I remember as we stood outside on the picture, it'd probably be right where those stairs are. He looked off down to the side, down to the hill, near the rock quarry. And he said, see that big open green field down there? And there was a huge green field, yeah. He said, that was a soccer field when Mauthausen was, was, was in operation. That was a soccer field. And I remember thinking, that's so strange. I couldn't even wrap my mind around the juxtaposition of this concentration camp with just a few yards away, a soccer field. He said, no. He said, the prison guards had a soccer team. And they would play soccer there all the time. And, and they would even have other teams from other places come and, and they would play right there on that soccer field. And, and people from town would, would all come to the game. Kind of like we tailgate and go to football games. They would, they would come out and they would watch the soccer games. They would have their children there. It was an event. They'd make a day of it. And all of us were hearing this thinking, how could someone sit there and watch a soccer game. Sit there with your children watching this when just a few yards away there were people 
dying right in front of them. There were people being tortured right in front of them. There was this horrific scene unfolding just a few yards away. How could that even be possible? And I'll never forget what the tour guide said. He said this about those who came to watch those games. He said, watching is not passive. It gives normalcy to what you're seeing. It makes it normal. You see, the gravitational pull of the world is so hard to withstand. The more we watch, the more it becomes normal. And the more normal it becomes, the greater its appeal. Remember what Jesus said, you do not belong to the world. This world is not your home, we sing. We're just what? We're just passing through. So don't get too comfortable. Don't let the world tell you who you are. Don't let the world dictate the course of your life. Don't put down roots. Don't make it your goal to assimilate into this world because it's passing away and you don't belong to it. Don't be afraid to face forward when everyone around you seems to have their back to you. It was so important to Jesus, he prayed about it. He prayed for us about it. John chapter 17, verse 13. He's talking to his heavenly father before he goes to the cross. He says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Did you notice a few phrases there with the world, a few prepositions in front of the world? We have at least four different phrases. He says this phrase, in the world, of the world, out of the world, into the world. And in these phrases, I I believe we begin to see a God-ordained vision for our response to the world. Our response to the world shouldn't be, well, the world is awful and dark, and so we have to come after the world and assault the world and attack the world and judge the world. Nor should our response be, I'm so afraid of this dark world, I'm just going to retreat in fear. What should our response be? Remember, Jesus prayed for his disciples, but what did he pray? He said, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. And so if we look at these phrases and the heart behind Jesus' prayer, we begin to see this vision. We begin to be informed on our response to the world. And here it is. We are in the world, but not of the world. And rather than deliver us out of the world, what does God do? He calls us, he sends us into the world to engage the world. You see, as followers of Jesus, as disciples trying to make disciples, our job certainly isn't to absorb the world. 
It's also not to attack the world in anger or elevate ourselves above the world in pride. We're better than the world. No. Nor is it to escape the world in fear. God calls us to engage the world. To influence the world rather than be influenced by the world. To invite the world into a different way. A better way. The way. A way of thinking. A way of life. How do we do that? Verse 17 is the key. In Jesus' prayer, he says, sanctify them by the truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word, God, is truth, Jesus says. What does that word sanctify mean? It means set them apart. Set them apart from the world. Don't let them be absorbed into the world because they don't belong to the world. Sanctify them by truth. By the truth of God's word. You see, it's truth that sets us apart from the world. It's truth that separates you from a society that is built and sustained on the lies of Satan. It is truth that illuminates the darkness of deceit and sin. It is truth that offers hope and provides peace of mind. Not trends, not social norms, but timeless truth. Something that lasts. Something that is eternal. Because remember, the world will pass away. And so here's the challenge this week. New challenge, new week. Here we go. It may be difficult. Here it is. Find your elevator moment. Find your elevator moment. What I mean is find a place Find an opportunity to resist the ways of the world. Face forward on the elevator when the world says to turn your back. And it's not just for the sake of being different. It's not, not to be obnoxious or to call attention to yourself. It's to stand up for truth. It's to, to rather than go along with what is socially acceptable, but maybe not God-honoring, you choose to do something different. And so maybe you have a decision to make this week. And maybe this decision shows a very clear fork in the road. If you're truly honest with yourself, and one path is self-serving, but it is the path that is socially acceptable. Of course you should do that. You should do your thing. You should put you first. You should do what makes you happy. But maybe the other path is what it honors God the most. And so what do you do? What is your elevator moment to choose the path that honors God? Maybe you have an opportunity to bless someone this week. Of course, if you step into that opportunity, it's going to require something from you, your time, your effort, your energy, your, your resources. It's going to require something from you. And, and what is that voice inside you going to say? And what does the world conform, those voices of the world conform around you don't waste your time with that. Don't get involved with that. That's too messy. It's going to cost you too much. Take care of yourself. Maybe that's your elevator moment. Maybe you have an opportunity at work. Maybe at work there's a decision being made. And maybe you're expected just to go along with it. And maybe this decision or this plan or this objective is not one that is ethical. 
but it will benefit the company. It'll benefit you. And it's acceptable because no one's really going to know. What are you going to do? Or maybe it's at Thanksgiving and you're around family. And, you know, families, I know your family doesn't do this, but some families, you know, they start talking in negative ways about someone or something. Well, you know, oh, so-and-so. And, or it just turns negative. And it's just acceptable that you join in the negativity, right? Why do we do that? To make ourselves feel better about ourselves? I'm not sure, but... It's, it's just that social pressure is there to, to join in. Someone's talking about someone else. Well, let's get on board with that. But maybe you choose to do something different. Maybe you choose to turn the conversation or to say something positive. Maybe your friends are going down a path, doing things that aren't godly. The easy thing to do is just to go with them. Maybe that's what you've always done. You don't want to alienate yourselves from these friends. They mean a lot to you, but you have a choice to make. Which way will you face? This week, look for that moment. Look for that opportunity to stand out. Again, not just to be different, to be different, not to call attention to yourself, but to stand for truth, to turn the tide. To go against the social norms that aren't honoring of God. I'd love to hear your stories. I'd love to hear how it goes. Let me know. As we conclude, let me just offer a good reminder. It's the way we began. Romans 8. If God is for you, if God is for you, who can be against you? You got this because God is with you. If we can encourage you or pray for you, let us do that. In just a moment, we're going to stand up, and our shepherds have a couple of them and their wives that will be in the parlor, a little room off this hallway behind me. You can exit out these doors and go around there. And if you just need a moment with them, you need a word of encouragement, you need a prayer, they want to be here for you. They make themselves available. They're going to pray anyway in there. They'd love to pray for you. Maybe you have something to celebrate with them. They'd love to hear from you. Or we as a church family can do the same. You can come down to the front. Maybe today you're ready to claim Jesus as Lord of your life. You're ready to reenact his life and death and burial and resurrection as you are baptized into Christ, raised by him to live a new life. Maybe you're ready to do that today. We'd love to celebrate with you. There's something we can do. I invite you to come as we stand and sing. Let's stand. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My 